Chapter 25 of The Red Room by August Strindberg. Translated by Ellie Schlesner. Recording by William Peck. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 25 Checkmate. The winter passed. Slowly for the sufferers, more quickly for those who were less unhappy. Spring came with its disappointed hopes of sun and verdure, and in its turn made room for the summer, which was but a short introduction to the autumn. On a May morning, Arvard Falk, now a member of the permanent staff of the workman's flag, was strolling along the quay, watching the vessels loading and discharging their cargoes. He looked less well-groomed than in the days gone by. His black hair was longer than fashion decreed, and he wore a beard a la Henry the Fourth, which gave his thin face an almost savage expression. An ominous fire burned in his eyes, a fire denoting the fanatic or the drunkard. He seemed to be endeavouring to make a choice among the vessels, but was unable to come to a decision. After hesitating for a considerable time, he accosted one of the sailors, who was wheeling a barrel full of goods onto the brig. He courteously raised his hat. "'Can you tell me the destination of this ship?' he asked timidly, imagining that he was speaking in a bold voice. "'Ship! I see no ship!' The bystanders laughed. "'But if you want to know where the brig's bound for, go and read the bill over there.' Falk was disconcerted, but he forced himself to say angrily, "'Can't you give a civil reply to a civil question?' "'Go to hell, and don't stand there swearing at a fellow. "'Tension!' The conversation broke off, and Falk made up his mind. He retraced his footsteps, passed through a narrow street, crossed the marketplace, and turned the first corner. Before the door of a dirty-looking house he stopped. Again he hesitated. He could never overcome his besetting sin of indecision. A small, ragged boy with a squint came running along, his hands full of proofs in long strips. As he was going to pass Falk, the latter stopped him. "'Is the editor upstairs?' he asked. "'Yes. He's been there since seven, replied the boy breathlessly. "'Has he asked for me?' "'Yes, more than once.' "'Is he in a bad temper?' "'He always is.' The boy shot upstairs like an arrow. Falk, following on his heels, entered the editorial office. It was a hole with two windows looking on a dark street. Before each of the windows stood a plain deal table, covered with paper, pens, newspapers, scissors, and a gum bottle. One of the tables was occupied by his old friend, Yigberg, dressed in a ragged black coat, engaged in reading proofs. At the other table, which was Falk's, sat a man in shirt-sleeves, his head covered by a black silk cap of the kind affected by the commonards. His face was covered by a red beard, and his thick-set figure with its clumsy outlines betrayed the man of the people. As Falk entered, the commonard's legs kicked the table violently. He turned up his shirt-sleeves, displaying blue tattoo marks representing an anchor and an Anglo-Saxon R, seized a pair of scissors, savagely stabbed the front page of a morning paper, cut out a paragraph, and said rudely, with his back to Falk, "'Where you been?' "'I've been ill,' replied Falk defiantly, as he thought, but humbly, as Yigberg told him afterwards. "'It's a lie. You've been drinking.' I saw you at the cafe last night. Surely I can go where I please. You can do what you like, but you've got to be here at the stroke of the clock. According to our agreement, it's quarter past eight. I am well aware that gentlemen who have been to college, where they imagine they learn a lot, have no idea of method and manners. Don't you call it ill-bred to be late at your work? Aren't you behaving like a boor when you compel your employer to do your work? What? It's the world turned upside down. The employee treats the master. The employer, if you like as if he were a dog, and capital is oppressed. 
when did you come to these conclusions when just now sir just now and i trust these conclusions are worth considering in spite of that but i discovered something else you are an ignoramus you can't spell look at this what's written here read it we hope that all those who will have to go through their drill next year is it possible who next year well that's quite right said falk right how dare you say it's right it's customary to say who in the next year and consequently it should also be written in this form that's right too definitions of time govern either the accusative or none of your learned palaver don't talk nonsense to me besides this you spell e x e r c i s e with an x only although it should be spelt e x s e r c i s e don't make excuses is it e x e r c i s e or e x s e r c i s e of course people say people say therefore e x s e r c i s e is right the customary pronunciation must be correct perhaps all things considered i'm a fool perhaps i can't spell correctly but enough now get to work and another time pay a little more attention to the clock he jumped up from his chair with a yell and boxed the ears of the printer's boy are you sleeping in a bright daylight you young scamp i'll teach you to keep awake you are not yet too old for a thrashing he seized the victim by the braces threw him on a pile of unsold papers and beat him with his belt i wasn't asleep i wasn't asleep i was only closing my eyes a little howled the boy what you dare to deny it you've learned to lie but i will teach you to speak the truth were you asleep or were you not asleep tell the truth or you'll be sorry for it i wasn't asleep whimpered the boy too young and inexperienced to get over his difficulty by telling a lie i see you mean to stand by your lie you hardened little devil you insolent liar he was going to continue the thrashing when falk rose approached the editor and said firmly don't touch him i saw he was not asleep by jove listen to him who the dickens are you don't touch him who said those words i must have heard a gnat buzzing or perhaps my ears deceive me i hope so i do hope so mr yigberg you're a decent fellow you haven't been to college did you happen to see whether this boy whom i'm holding by the braces like a fish was asleep or not if he wasn't asleep replied yigberg phlegmatically and obligingly he was just on the point of dropping off well answered would you mind holding him mr yigberg while i give him a lesson with my cane in telling the truth you no right to beat him said falk if you dare to touch him i shall open the window and call for the police i am master in my own house and i always thrash my apprentices he is an apprentice and will be employed in the editorial office later on that's what's going to be done although there are people who imagine that a paper can only be properly edited by a man who has been to college speak up gustav are you learning newspaper work answer but tell the truth or before the boy had time to reply the door was open and a head looked in a very striking head and certainly not one that might have been expected in such a place but it was a well-known head it had been painted five times at the sight of it the editor strapped his belt round him hastily put on his coat bowed and smiled the visitor asked whether the editor was disengaged he received a satisfactory reply and the last remnant of the working man disappeared when a quick movement swept the commonard's cap off the editor's head both men went into the inner office and the door closed behind them i wonder what the count's after said yigberg 
with the air of a schoolboy when the master had left the classroom i don't wonder in the least said falk i think i know the kind of rascal he is and the kind of rascal the editor is but i am surprised to find that you have changed from a mere blockhead into an infamous wretch and that you lend yourself to these disgraceful acts don't lose your temper my dear fellow you were not at the house last night no in my opinion parliament is a farce except in so far as the private interests are concerned what about the triton the question was put to the vote and it was resolved that the government in view of the greatness the patriotism which characterized the enterprise should take over the debentures while the society went into liquidation that is to say settle the current affairs which means that the government will prop up the house while the foundation crumbles away so as to give the directors time to get out of harm's way you would rather that all those small i know what you're going to say all those small capitalists yes i would rather see them working with their small capital than idling away their time and lending it out at interest but above all things i should like to see those sharpers in prison it would help to put a stop to these swindles but they call it political economy it's vile there's something else i want to say you covet my post you shall have it i hate the idea of your sitting in your corner with a heart filled with bitterness because you have to sweep up after me in reading proofs there are already too many of my unprinted articles lying on the desk of this contemptible apostle of liberty to tempt me to go on telling cock-and-bull stories the red cap was too conservative to please me but the people's flag is too dirty yes i am glad to see you relinquishing your chimeras and listening to common sense go to the grey bonnet you'll have a chance there i have lost the illusion that the cause of the oppressed lies in good hands and i think it would be a splendid mission to enlighten the people on the value of public opinion especially printed public opinion and its origin but i shall never abandon the cause the door to the inner room opened again and the editor came out he stood still in the middle of the office and said in an unnaturally conciliatory voice almost politely i want you to look after the office for a day mr falk i have to go away important business mr yigbert will assist you so far as the daily business is concerned his lordship will be using my room for a few minutes i hope gentlemen you will see that he has everything he wants oh please don't trouble came the count's voice from the inside room where he was sitting bent over a manuscript the editor went and strange to say two minutes later the count went also he had waited just long enough to avoid being seen in the company of the editor of the workman's flag are you sure he's gone asked yigbert i hope so said falk then i'll go and have a look at the market by and by have you seen beta since since when since she left the cafe and went to live in the room by herself how did you know she did do control your temper falk you'll never get on in the world unless you do yes you're right i must take matters more calmly or else i'll go out of my mind but that girl whom i love so dearly how shamefully she treated me to give to that clumsy bore all she denied to me and then to have the face to tell me that it proved the purity of her love for me most excellent dialectics and she is quite right too for her proposition is correct she does love you doesn't she she's running after me anyhow and you i hate her with all my soul but i am afraid to meet her which proves that you are still in love with her let's change the subject you really must control yourself falk take an example from me but now i'll go and sun myself one should enjoy life as much as possible in this dreary world gustav you can go and play buttons for an hour if you like 
Falk was left alone. The sun threw his rays over the steep roof opposite and warmed the room. He opened the window and put out his head for a breath of fresh air, but he only breathed the pugnant odors of the gutter. His glance swept the street on the right, and far away in the distance he saw a part of a steamer, a few waves of the Lake of Malar glittering in the sunlight, and a hollow in the rocks on the other side, which were just beginning to show a little green here and there. He thought of the people whom the steamer would take into the country, who would bathe in those waves and feast their eyes on the young green. But at this moment the whitesmith below him began to hammer a sheet of iron, so that the house and window panes trembled. Two or three laborers went by with a rattling, evil-smelling cart, and an odor of brandy, beer, sawdust, and pine branches poured out of the inn opposite. He shut the window and sat down at his table. Before him lay a heap of about a hundred provincial papers, from which it was his task to make cuttings. He took off his cuffs and began to look through them. They smelt of oil and soot, and blackened his hands. That was their principal feature. Nothing he considered worthy of reprinting was of any use, for he had to consider the program of his paper. A report to the effect that the workmen of a certain factory had given the foreman a silver snuff-box had to be cut out, but the notice of a manufacturer having given five hundred crowns to his workingmen's funds had to be ignored. A paragraph reporting that the Duke of Holland had hand-selled a pile-driver and director Halsheim celebrated the event in verses had to be cut out and reproduced in full, because the people like to read this kind of thing. If he could add a little biting sarcasm, all the better, for then they were sure to hear about it. Roughly speaking, the rule was to cut out everything said in favor of journalists and workingmen and everything deprecating, clergymen, officers, wholesale merchants, not retail, the professions, and famous writers. Moreover, at least once a week, it was his business to attack the management of the Royal Theatre, and severely criticize the frivolous musical comedies produced in the Little Theatre, in the name of morality and public decency. He had noticed that the working men did not patronize these theatres. Once a month, the town councillors had to be accused of extravagance. As often as opportunity arose, the form of government, not government itself, had to be assailed. The editor severely censored all attacks on certain members of Parliament and ministers. Which? That was a mystery, unknown to even the editor. It depended on a combination of circumstances which only the secret proprietor of the paper could deal with. Falk worked with his scissors until one of his hands was black. He had frequent recourse to the gum bottle, but the gum smelt sour, and the heat in the room was stifling. The poor aloe, capable of enduring thirst like a camel, and patiently receiving countless stabs from an irritated steel nib, increased the terrible resemblance to a desert. It had been stabbed until it was covered with black wounds. Its leaves shot, like a bundle of donkey's ears, out of the parched mold. Falk probably had a vague consciousness of something of this sort, as he sat plunged in thought, for before he could realize what he was doing, he had docked off all the earlobes. When he perceived what he had done, he painted the wounds with gum and watched it drying in the sun. He vaguely wondered for a few moments how he was going to get dinner, for he had strayed onto their path which leads to destruction, so-called poor circumstances. Finally he lit a pipe, and watched the soothing smoke rising and bathing for a few seconds in the sunshine. It made him feel more tolerant of poor Sweden, as she expressed herself in these daily, weekly, and monthly reports called the press. He put the scissors aside and threw the papers into a corner. 
he shared the contents of the earthen water bottle with the aloe. The miserable object looked like a creature whose wings had been clipped, a spirit standing in a bog on its head, digging for something, for pearls, for instance, or at any rate for empty shells. Then despair, like a tanner, seized him again with a long hook and pushed him down into the vat where he was to be prepared for the knife, which should scrape his skin off and make him like everybody else. And he felt no remorse, no regret at a wasted life, but only despair at having to die in his youth, died a spiritual death, before he had an opportunity of being of use in the world, despair that he was being cast into the fire as a useless reed. The clock in the German church struck eleven, and the chimes began to play, O blessed land, and my life a wave. As if seized by the same idea, an Italian barrel organ with a flute accompaniment began to play the Blue Danube. So much music put new life into the tinsmith below, who began hammering his iron sheet with redoubled energy. The din and uproar prevented Falk from becoming aware of the opening of the door and the entrance of two men. One of them had a tall, lean figure, an aquiline nose, and long hair. The other one was short, blonde, and thick-set. His perspiring face much resembled the quadruped, which the Hebrews considered more unclean than any other. Their outward appearance betrayed an occupation requiring neither much mental nor physical strength. It had a quality of vagueness pointing to irregularity of work and habits. "'Hush!' whispered the tall man. "'Are you alone?' Falk was partly pleased, partly annoyed at the sight of his visitors. "'Quite alone. The Red One's left town.' "'Has he?' "'Come along, then, and have some dinner.' Falk had no objection. He locked the office and went with his visitors to the nearest public house, where the three of them sat down in the darkest corner. "'Here, have some brandy,' said the thick-set man, whose glazed eyes sparkled at the sight of the brandy bottle. But Falk, who had only joined his friends because he was yearning for sympathy and comfort, paid no attention to the proffered delights. "'I haven't been as miserable as this for a long time,' he said. "'Have some bread and butter and herring,' said the tall man. "'We'll have some caraway cheese. Here, waiter.' "'Can't you advise me?' Falk began again. "'I can't stand the red one any longer, and I must—' "'Here, waiter, bring some black bread.' "'Drink, Falk, and don't talk nonsense.' Falk was thrown out of the saddle. He made no second attempt to find sympathy with his mental difficulties, but tried another, not unusual way. "'Your advice is the brandy bottle?' he said. "'Very well, with all my soul, then.' The alcohol flowed through his veins like poison for he was not accustomed to taking strong drink in the morning. The smell of cooking, the buzzing of the flies, the odor of the faded flowers, which stood by the side of the dirty table center, induced in him a strange feeling of well-being. And his low companions, with their neglected linen, their greasy coats, and their unwashed gale-bird faces, harmonized so well with his own degraded position that he felt a wild joy surging in his heart. We were in the deer park last night, and by Jove we did drink said the stout man, once more enjoying the past delights of memory. Falk had no answer to this, and moreover, his thoughts were running in a different groove. "'Isn't it jolly to have a morning off?' said the tall man, who seemed to be playing the part of tempter. "'It is, indeed,' replied Falk, trying to measure his freedom, as it were, with a glance through the window. But all he saw was a fire escape and a dustbin in a yard which never received more than a faint reflection of the summer sky. "'Half a pint? That's it.' "'Ah, well, what do you say to the triton?' "'Ha, ha, ha! "'Don't laugh,' said Falk. "'Many a poor devil will suffer through it.' "'Who are the poor devils? "'Poor capitalists? 
Are you sorry for those who don't work, but live on the proceeds of their money? No, my boy, you are still full of prejudice. There was a funny tale on the Hornet about a wholesale merchant who bequeathed to the crash Bethlehem twenty thousand crowns, and was given the order of Vasa for his munificence. Now it has transpired that the bequest was in Triton shares, with joint liability, and so the crash is, of course, bankrupt. Isn't that lovely? The assets went twenty-five cradles and an oil painting by an unknown master. It's too funny. The portrait was valued at five crowns. Ha ha! The subject of the conversation irritated Falk, for he knew more of the matter than the two others. Did you see the red cap? Unmasked that humbug Schoenstrom, who published that volume of miserable verses at Christmas, said the stout man. It really was a rare pleasure to learn the truth about the rascal. I have more than once given him a sound slating in the copper snake. But you were rather unjust. His verses were not as bad as you said, remarked the tall man. Not as bad. They were worse than mine, which the grey bonnet tore to shreds. Don't you remember? By the by, Falk, have you been to the theatre in Deer Park? asked the tall man. No. What a pity. The Lundholm gang of thieves is playing there. Impudent fellow, the director. He sent no seats to the copper snake. And when we arrived at the theatre last night, he turns us out. But he'll pay for it. You give it to the dog. Here's paper and pencil. Heading. Theatre and music. Deer Park Theatre. Now you go on. But I haven't seen the company. What does that matter? Have you ever written about anything you hadn't seen? No. I've unmasked humbugs, but I have never attacked unoffending people. And I know nothing about this company. They are a miserable lot. Just scum, affirmed the stout man. Sharpen your pen and bruise his heel. You are splendid at it. Why don't you bruise him yourselves? Because the printers know our handwriting, and some of them walk on into crowds. Moreover, Lundholm is a violent fellow. He will be sure to invade the editorial office. Then it will be a good thing to be able to tell him that the criticism is a communication from the public. And while you write up the stage, I will do the concerts. There was a sacred concert last week. Wasn't the man's name Daubry with a Y? No, with an I, corrected the fat man. Don't forget he's a tenor, and sang Stop It Matter. How do you spell it? I'll tell you in a minute. The stout editor of the Copper Snake took a packet of greasy newspapers from the gas meter. Here's the whole program, and I believe a criticism as well. Falk could not help laughing. How could a criticism appear simultaneously with the advertisement? Why shouldn't it? But we shan't want it. I will criticize that French mob myself. You better do the literature, fatty. Do the publishers send books to the Copper Snake? asked Falk. Are you mad? Do you buy them yourselves for the sake of reviewing them? Buy them? Greenhorn? Have another glass and cheer up, and I'll treat you to a chop. Do you read the books which you review? Who do you think has time for reading books? Isn't it enough to write about them? It's quite sufficient to read the papers. Moreover, it's our principle to slate everything. An absurd principle. Not at all. It brings all the authors, enemies, and enviers on one side, and so one's in the majority. Those who are neutral would rather see an author slated than praised. To the nobody there is something edifying and comforting in the knowledge that the road to fame is beset with thorns. Don't you think so? You might be right, but the idea of playing with human destinies in this way is terrible. Oh, it's good for the young and old. I know that, for I was persistently slated in my young days. But you mislead public opinion. The public does not want to have an opinion. It wants to satisfy his passions. If I praise your enemy, you writhe like a worm and tell me that I have no judgment. If I praise your friend, you tell me that I have. Take that last piece of the dramatic theatre, Fatty, which has just been published in book form. Are you sure that it's been published? I'm certain of it. 
It's quite safe to say that there isn't enough action in it. That's a phrase the public knows well. Laugh a little at the beautiful language. That's good old disparaging praise. Then attack the management for having accepted such a play, and point out that the moral teaching is doubtful. A very safe thing to say about most things. But as you haven't seen the performance, say what you want of room compels us to postpone our criticism of the acting. Do that, and you can't make a mistake. Who is the unfortunate author? asked Falk. Nobody knows. Think of his parents, his friends. Who will read your possibly quite unjust remarks? What's that got to do with the copper snake? They were hoping to see a friend slated. They know what to expect from the copper snake. Have you no conscience? As a public which supports us a conscience? Do you think we could survive if it did not support us? Would you like to hear a paragraph which I wrote on the present slate of literature? I can assure you it will give you plenty to think about. I have a copy with me. But let us have some stout first. Waiter, here. Now I'm going to give you a treat. You can profit by it if you like. We have not heard so much whining in the Swedish verse factory for many years. This constant pulling is enough to drive a man into a lunatic asylum. Robust rascals, counterwall like cats in March. They imagine that anemia and adenoids will arouse public interest now that consumption is played out. And withal, they have backs broad as brewers' horses and faces red as tapsers. This one whimpers about the infidelity of women, although all he has to go on is the bought loyalty of a wanton. That one tells us that he has no gold, but that his harp is all he possesses in the world. The liar, he has five thousand crowns dividend per annum and the right to an endowed chair in the Swedish Academy. A third is faithless, cynical scoffer, who cannot open his lips without breathing forth his impure spirit and babbling blasphemies. Their verses are not a whit better than those which thirty years ago clergymen's daughters sang through the guitar. They should write for confectioners at a penny a line, and not waste the time of publishers, printers, and reviewers with their rhymes. What do they write about? About nothing at all, that is to say, about themselves. Is it bad form to talk about oneself? But it is quite the right thing to write about oneself. What are they bemoaning? Their incapacity to achieve a success? Success? That is the word. Have they produced one single thought, capable of benefiting their fellow creatures? The age in which they live? If they had but once championed the cause of the helpless, their sins might be forgiven them. But they have not. Therefore they are a sounding brass. Nay, they are a clanking piece of tin, and the cracked bell of a fool's cap. For they have no other love than the love of their next edition of their books, the love of the academy and the love of themselves. That's sarcasm, isn't it? What? It's unjust, said Falk. I find it very impressive, said the stout man. You can't deny that it is well written, can you? He wields a pen which pierces shoe leather. Now, lads, let's stop talking and write. Afterwards you shall have coffee and liqueurs. And they wrote of human merit and human unworthiness and broke hearts as if they were breaking eggshells. Falk felt an indescribable longing for fresh air. He opened the window which looked on the yard. It was dark and narrow like a tomb. All he could see was a small square of the sky, if he bent his head far back. He fancied that he was sitting in his grave, breathing brandy fumes and kitchen smells, eating the funeral repast at the burial of his youth, his principles and his honor. He smelt the elder blossoms which stood on the table, but they reeked of decay. Once more he looked out of the window, eager to find an object which would not inspire him with loathing. But there was nothing but a newly tarred dustbin standing like a coffin, with its contents of cast-off finery and broken litter. His thoughts climbed up the fire escape which seemed to lead from dirt, stench, and shame right up into the blue sky. But no angels were ascending and descending, 
and though love was watching from above there was nothing but empty blue void falk took his pen and began to shade the letters of the headline theatre when a strong hand clutched his arm and a firm voice said come along i want to speak to you he looked up taken back in a shame borg stood beside him apparently determined not to let him go may i introduce began falk no you may not interrupted borg i don't want to know any drunken scribblers come along he drew falk to the door where's your hat oh here it is come along they were in the street borg took his arm led him to the nearest square marched him into a shop and bought him a pair of canvas shoes this done he drew him across the lock to the harbor a cutter lay there fast to her moorings but ready to go to sea in the cutter sat young levi reading a latin grammar and munching a piece of bread and butter this said borg is the cutter uriah it's an ugly name but she is a good boat and she is insured in the triton there sits her owner the hebrew lad isaac reading a latin grammar the idiot wants to go to college and from this moment you are engaged as his tutor for the summer and now we'll be off for our summer residence at namdo all hands on board no demure ready put off End of chapter twenty five